I usually don't. It's working one, two, three jobs just to pay for school and support themselves. And so how do you tell a student who is having to do all of that, hey, you need to do some self-care? We know that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But imagining this truth when it comes to our own behaviors can seem a little bit far-fetched. The reality is that when learning to take care of ourselves, learning to love who we are is an important step. It's Hash It Out, and we're back with your co-host Anna, Atia, and Elizabeth to talk about the pressures of being a person of color, dealing with discrimination, racial battle fatigue, and then ultimately learning how to take care of yourself when the world seems to be against you. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? Damn. In this episode, we were given the chance to speak with the Director of Health and Wellness Promotion at IUPUI, Shante Elbert. Shante has been working at IUPUI for about three years now, but has been working with health, and health education and promotion as an educator for more than 12 years. Shante leads a group of staff and students that are geared toward the promotion of health care to the IUPUI community. You can read more about Shante on the Health and Wellness website, and while you're there, feel free to look around and see the resources that Health and Wellness Promotion offers. Shantae is a queen, and it was an honor to get to interview her. Listen out for her input on certain topics regarding racial battle fatigue, sexual health, and self-care, among other things. We face a different generation of racism than our parents did. Mm -hmm. Things were much more blatant, so it was easy to say, that's racist, you're racist, exactly. this is a racist institution. But we're facing things that you're like, okay, am I crazy, or did they just do this? And so it kind of, you inter we internalize a lot. Let's start with the basics. Oh. Microaggression. Yeah. Hey, can I touch your hair? Okay, but where are you really from? So what are you? You don't speak Spanish? Oh my God, that's so gay. Oh, I don't even see you as black. You're really pretty for a dark-skinned girl. What do they speak in Japan? Asian? Do any of these sound familiar? For some, the mere sound of these statements can provoke an emotional reaction, while others may be wondering what's so wrong with these statements. According to psychologytoday.com, microaggressions are everyday verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights, snubs, or insults, whether intentional or unintentional which communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative messages based solely upon their marginalized group membership. So yes, this means that you could be doing it without even realizing it. And it's not realizing it that adds to the problem. So, why do they matter and why should we care about them? Well, imagine having your identity called into question every single time you walk into a room. Going into a professional setting a job interview, and being told that the way your hair grows from your scalp is unacceptable, forcing you to change the way your body is naturally made, simply because the society that you live in tells you so. A reality that white people in America typically don't have to face. So why does knowing this information matter? What do you guys think? 
think knowing this information matters because first, it's the knowledge of having a term and like a definition to something you experience every day. When you're in a conversation and something just doesn't feel right and you're like, mm -hmm. what was that? Like, you're just like, it just stops you in your tracks. And I also think it matters because um, now knowing that you can be equipped to these like discrimination, yeah. So you have the armor to face the discrimination. I think one thing that's really interesting about these microaggressions is like it a lot of times it's everyday you know vocabulary yeah. and like things that we just say on a day-to-day -day basis and I think it's hard to put ourselves in that place of the person that we're asking that question um to yeah and like people think that like oh they're microaggressions that's why they're called micro because they're not a big deal and it's like no if it piles up like that, it is a big deal. It becomes a big deal, exactly. It reminds me of the idea of like one person from a marginalized group having to speak for the entire group, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And being that person to speak up about those microaggressions actually kind of adds to that idea. Because if you're constantly having to defend yourself and you're the only one, you know, you're the only one of this group in your, let's say, friend group, you know, and yeah. they're like constantly saying it's a joke, then you're like having to speak for the entire population, like yeah. on your own. And that's, that's exhausting. Yeah, and that, I think it's important to point out that on top of being like um, hit with these microaggressions whenever they happen, um, these aren't experienced in a vacuum. Like yeah. you have like life experiences happening, ups and downs of life, as well as like the discrimination if you're a person of color or whoever you are, like everyday things. And on top of that, people are just hitting you with these subliminal messages that just corrode who you like the the positive things you feel about yourself yeah. or who you are, your identity and things like that. So it's not just like microaggressions by themselves are just so like demeaning and defamatory that they just like ruin people's lives. It's that it's kind of the straw that breaks people's backs. Yeah, it's the culmination of the systemic racism, the systemic sexism. Yeah. It's what trickled down to the common like populace to use in their everyday vernacular. Like mm -hmm. it comes from this, I, this like space that <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh Guys, I'm in here trying to move a chair while we're talking. It's not going well. I'm sorry, y'all. It's okay. Okay. We'll give you a second. <laughs> She's propping her feet up. You gotta get comfortable to talk about racism, you know? I feel it. Okay. That what you do. Let me see. Okay. Sorry, y'all. Are we comfy, everybody? Yes, we're comfy. Mm -hmm. Are we still recording? Yeah. We are. Moving forward, it is important to recognize the vocabulary that we use. We have all been taught the rhyme of sticks and stones, but realizing that words can hurt is a step in the grand direction for us as a society. Assume the position, you fit the description. It made me think about how, like, there are these famous cases throughout history where, like, the cops had the dude that did it, but like let him go because he was white. Mm. Because they always assumed that these crimes were being committed by black men. Wow. Yeah, like I think that was even, if I remember correctly, that was even something that happened in the Zodiac case. Like the most famous serial killer of all time was almost caught, but they were told that it was a black man who did something that they later tied to the Zodiac. So they, ca they caught him and let him go? He was like, if I remember correctly, like walking past the cop car and shit. And like was never taken in, detained or anything because they were told it was a black man who had committed the latest crime. <laughs> yeah. 
goodness. I mean, there there's not really a good track record of police with serial killers or like other crime. Let's yeah. be real. Homicides are like thirty percent solved. <laughs> yeah, at the most. And I mean, like Jeffrey Dahmer was like had one of his victims returned to him because he was gay. <laughs> so the cops were like, "Oh, it's a lovers' quarrel," and returned one of his victims to him. Yeah, and that's what I think of when I read a quote like this is all of the cases where people are like profiled and stuffed into like, oh, it must have been them or it couldn't have been this person. I think that's one branch of it. My Mm -hmm. mind, like now that I'm thinking about it, it immediately went to my career field because um, so assume the position you fit the description. I'm in like media related things like filmmaking, things like that. And I mean, off the top of your head, name two filmmakers, like, famous directors. Spike Lee. Spike Lee, okay. Two. Um. Okay, Tia. (laughs) 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 Someone just go to the movies. Can you name, like, one or two famous directors? I was, I... Mel Brooks. I think we might be the wrong people to ask because I was going to go towards Ava DuVernay like as my immediate response and then I was like this is not the point of the question. <laughs> I, I mean, the point of the I question I've never even heard that one. Oh, she's the woman who directed 13th. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was oh. I was rewatching it last night so that was the first thing that popped to my head was Ava DuVernay. Okay. Well, okay. You guys didn't prove my point but I can prove my own point. <laughs> See, I feel like we're the wrong people to ask yeah, that question because we probably would. Yeah, you guys are more uh, woke and like conscious of different Fair things. Enough. So, um, <clears throat> my point was when I heard this quote um, fit the description of people in the filmmaking field or entertainment business, mm-hmm. people behind the camera, um, Steven, Stil- Steven Spielberg, yep. Christopher Nolan, um, Quentin Tarantino, mm. all these people, even back in the day, like, um, Hitchcock. Yeah. I mean, everybody, there was a really good um, female, she was actress turned director, but I forget her name. She was back in, like, the early days of, like, Hollywood. But um, basically, it's people that don't look like me, and I felt like I went into, um, like, a self-deprecating time in my life where I was like nobody looks like me that's successful in this industry and there must be a reason why Mm -hmm. and it's because I don't fit the description I don't have it in me to do this so I think that's also part of racial battle fatigue when you don't see people representing that look like you and you're like this there's probably a reason because we're not good enough or something Mm -hmm. like that and I don't think it's it's never that it's like 99% of either First of all, you're holding yourself back because you don't feel like you can do it because you don't have examples out there. But it's mostly because there's all these barriers to keep people that aren't um, mainstream, like dominant culture from those mm-hmm. very public roles. So I think of that a lot, especially in career, like breaking the glass ceiling and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing the uh, representation, but yeah. It's a good point. Like... Literally, the quote fits with that. Like, assume the position, you fit the description. Like, that when you start talking about career, I was like, oh, like a job description. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it does fit because it's like you could have everything that a job description asks for mm-hmm. and walk into that interview and get denied. Like, I was reading today, there's a woman who was offered a curator position at the MoMA, mm-hmm. the Museum of Modern Art. She was offered a curator position and they revoked the offer when they found out she had just given birth. Oh. Yeah, 
specifically because they didn't want to have to work with a woman who had a child. They get sued because of discrimination? She's suing them right now. Oh That's why I was reading about it. because, And she made a good point, too. She was like, I'm a middle-class white woman. If I don't speak up, who's going to? Yeah. Like, people with less opportunity, less yeah. time, less money than me? Wow. And it's like... You could meet every, have you ever read about how when men look at a job description, if they fit three or more of the qualities, oh, yeah. they yeah. apply, but women require themselves, like they won't even apply unless they meet every single yeah. qualification. Yeah. And the language is different. Like mm -hmm. guys say, I'm here for this job because I want to learn these skills. And women say, I have these, 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 and these skills, and that's why I'm good for this job. Yeah. And it's a different, um, different set of standards. Absolutely. And um, it's just fatigue for your identities in different aspects. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's hard. I think it, it feeds into this culture behind us, or I'll say the so so society finding its way to classify people into certain boxes, and assuming that people can only benefit from or benefit or you know benefit the positions if they look a certain way mm -hmm. or if they have a certain characteristic of what that is you yeah like I mean? you everybody has an idea of what certain things look like yeah like who does your boss look like like yeah. if you were writing a story and you had to describe like physical characteristics of the boss he looked like steve carell from the office yeah yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and it's just like ingrained and i i mean you notice this i'm going back to like my creative aspect of like if i'm drawing like a cartoon character or something like that it's usually like white characteristics and things like that because a in the how-to books that's the only thing that was like taught mm -hmm. how to draw like those hair types those body structures and things like that and like in b i don't i don't know it's another representation thing it's very strange like even if you're not the majority you think you think in the ter in terms of the majority like yeah. yes someone brought up a really good point and like, I'm on this thing about hair lately for some reason. And hair is important. Hair is important. It is. And I think, more specifically, in the black community, it's become both a debilitating and an empowering thing as well. So, it was, it was a video, and it was talking about how hotels always, they give you complimentary shampoos and conditioners. Mm -hmm. But if you look at a black person physically versus a, a white person physically, or, you know, like, our hair is different. Yeah. It's different. You yeah. Know? And there are certain shampoos that we can't use on our hair because it'll dry it out, or, and, you know, that we just can't. And the question that the video was, was asking is, why aren't we requiring these hotels to service us as well? Yeah. We're, we're paying for them. You know what I mean? We make up a certain percentage of the, the income, That's that true. the salary, the, what, the money that goes into these hotels. Like, mm -hmm. why, why isn't it serving, for, servicing us? Ooh, sorry. But, um... It's because we're not requiring them to, because we don't know any better. The yeah. norm is the norm. You, yeah. You know? Yeah. I've worked at multiple hotels, and I have never had somebody bring that up. I had never thought about it. Like, not I, I'm not I. really, like, a frequent hotel or, like, traveler. Yeah. Traveler, because, like, if I do travel, I stay with family. But yeah. think of that perspective and also thinking just the hair care beauty industry in general. Like, there was so much fatigue when I was a teenager to find oh what gosh. hair products I should use, shouldn't use, went through so much money that I didn't have. Um, when I was a teenager, it was my mom's money, and she just like, you have all these hair products already, just use them. I'm like, they don't work. Right. And I didn't have anyone to tell me, like, what did and didn't work. And then mm -hmm. YouTube, like, kind of um, 
that was really helpful because it filled in the gap of like what instead of like paying for it you had somebody telling you about it and like the reviews and things like that so like it's gotten better but being seeing representation in like the aisles at the stores just as important as like on the screen because you absolutely you, I felt pretty much invisible growing up because I felt like no one apparently no one had my hair type or had these problems that I did until I until people started using YouTube to like be like hey I, I have these problems too mm -hmm. At the beginning of the semester, we asked IUPUI students if they watched the news and if you can recall their answers. I don't listen to the news because like, I just don't have the news channel on my TV. I just have like Netflix and Hulu. Uh, it's probably been a while since I've watched the news, quite frankly. You don't watch the news? Sure don't. There's too much negativity out there all the time. There is a distinct trend among IUPUI students that shows that people are just not tuning in. But why? Could it be a defense mechanism to help shield oneself against reality, or is it something deeper? Even if you have not been intentionally turning on the news or picking up a paper, one name has been in the headlines in the past few weeks. Now that protest by Colin Kaepernick, 49ers quarterback knelt instead of standing during the national anthem at last night. Well, Nike's new Just Do It ad will start airing tonight at the NFL well, Whatever internal deliberation, studies, thinking, reasoning they've done, they believe in the long run this is good business. Colin Kaepernick. An NFL football player fed up with the politics around police brutality towards people of color Kaepernick decided that he would utilize his First Amendment right to protest the national anthem during a game. Backlash ensued. Recently, Nike, in a successful attempt to sell more shoes, came out with Kaepernick as the face of the brand, further dividing parties, one side burning their shoes and the other running to get stores. A successful business move that pissed off many conservatives. It allowed Nike to exploit the struggle of police brutality to sell its products while mothers still mourn the deaths of their sons, whose lives were taken at the hands of people meant to protect them. Instances like these, the ones that get high publicity, the one day your safety, your sanity, a struggle that people of color have faced since the colonization of the Americas. It's being the only person that is a part of the Latinx identity group in your class and everyone's head whipping around to you when the topic of immigration comes up. It's, according to the man who coined the term, Dr. William A. Smith. Symptoms that, that racial battle fatigue gives us is analogous to a, a, a veteran coming back from war. Right. And see, here's the, here's the, the difference. Why you're right, it's very, very similar. But usually when you take a, a veteran off of the source of conflict, he or she, once she returns to a, a, a normalized situation, that's typically when the symptoms start to occur. That's, mm -hmm. why, that's what makes it post, right? Post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress syndrome. Then they're put in a situation where they have other, now, soldiers who can affirm their reality. When have Black people been in a post racial condition or post-racialized condition. So we always are living that stress. Yes. Right? So it's never post. So people of color are never in a post-racial kind of condition 
those symptoms are constantly occurring and they're occurring across our lifespan. So he's comparing PTSD to post, post what, wait, he's comparing PTSD to racial battle fatigue. Yes, he's trying to normalize a form of anxiety that only affects people of color. Okay. And basically with this comparison, he's saying there's not like an event that triggers it. No. The, it's a constant state of being. Yes. Okay. Because um, you, can't, you can't get out of it. Yeah. You know, it's, like you said, you can never be in a post-racial condition. Exactly. So um, it's a shadow. This follows you your whole life. And with his, like, he's the person that coined the term. Correct? Yeah. So, like, he's the person that coined the term, and now he's trying to bring awareness to, like, this is... Trying to find, uh, trying to bring like a word to fit a feeling that yeah. people always felt, just like microaggressions. Yeah. yeah, it's giving a name to something which is powerful, like we've talked about. Yeah. More importantly, it's being recognized by the APA. Oh wow. As a legit anxiety disorder. Okay. You know I mean? So, the research is is helpful. In yeah. Terms of, especially when you consider that people of color, there's many cultural stipulations um, behind. Seeking psychological help, seeking mm -hmm. mental health care. Yeah, I'd like to, let's talk about that. Dr. Smith of the University of Utah, the creator of the term racial battle fatigue. His research focuses heavily on just what's going on in the minds of young black men and women, the differences between the two, and what should be done on a systemic level to battle this form of anxiety. So what is the constant message of being told to always watch out doing to people of color on a psychological level? According to thinkprogress.org, more black people are found to rely on alcohol, tobacco, or drugs as a coping mechanism for such traumas due to lack of proper mental health service. The CDC has recorded a huge racial disparity in terms of infant mortality due to stress on new mothers, a disparity that's only growing larger. What the hell is going on? How do you take care of yourself after a long, stressful week? Sleeping. Yeah. I binge Netflix. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mental health care amongst people of color is lacking. And when people act out, stigmas are placed upon the entire group. I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds super exhausting to say the least. Even on college campuses, studies show that students of color have a hard time battling against racism while trying to succeed academically. This information comes from multi-ethnic college surveys. I can imagine that when battling discrimination on top of academics, not to mention other stresses that come from being a typical college student, like homesickness and finances, your success rates may vary significantly from white counterparts. So what is IEPUI doing to help with racial battle fatigue? According to Shante Albert, I know uh, a lot has been covered. We had Dr. Lori Patton Davis come in and do some workshops with our Division of Student Affairs last year for professional development around diversity, microaggressions, and racial battle fatigue. And it really was just an introductory conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that she does a lot of work around that in critical race theory and a lot of fem black feminist theory. And, and so the biggest part of it for me is that I'm a lifelong learner, so that's intriguing for me personally. And I'm also including it in, in some of my dissertation work. So for me, it's outside of the scope of my health and wellness work. Mm -hmm. 
But on the instance of it, what are we doing to kind of talk about it with students? It really is going to be catered to the different audiences that we are working with. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm sitting in front of, uh, I've been invited to come and talk to some of the primarily African-American student organizations, my conversations with them would be what we call catered and tailored to them Mm -hmm. versus when I'm in a first year seminar class that is very diverse and who's there. I'm going to be more broad-based, and I may be specific based off certain comments students say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the trick of being a great health educator is that you can think off the cuff and you know how to hone in and dig deeper based off comments to some of our Jeopardy questions. Okay. Simply put, life is stressful, but what can we do to fight back against our stress? We asked the IUPUI community, what do you do to take care of yourself? How do you cope with a stressful week? And they told us, I shop. It's so sad. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I do. That's how I, I cope. <laughs> well, I think like when I study and like I listen to music, that like really actually helps me like, like relieve my stress and stuff like that. But also I like to work out a lot. So I generally like take, when I take my breaks from studying, I feel like me working out is like my leisure time and like just relaxing my brain mentally. And then I've been trying to get into yoga. Okay, so in knowing that we all have our different ways of coping with the week, the lovely Shantae Obert had this to say about self-care. This idea of self-care, what is (laughs) self-care? You know what, I think self-care can be challenging for college students um, because a lot of times people look at self-care as something that's going to cost them something, like to go get a massage, mm. to go uh, pay for a, a G, um, gym membership. But I really think self-care really starts with your own personal well-being and how you are looking at um, your own life in those eight dimensions. And self-care, um, I believe is the best. I always say self-care is the best care. Mm. But that can be very hard for those who come from underrepresented populations, those who have had um, to experience trauma, saying self-care can be triggering because they have haven't had the opportunity to develop normally Mm -hmm. um and so when you grow up around trauma that is generational um be when we say you know we want you to be happy there may not be a common feeling for them and so teaching them ways to do mindfulness meditation or utilizing prayer whatever their preference is um as a way of self-care um, has to be taught and reinforced. And so we call it through behavior change, which has to be ongoing, you try to shift their mind and shift their thinking. And that takes time. And so I have a hard time talking about self-care broadly because I know for mm-hmm. every student, self-care is going to look very different and feel different. But for some students, it can just be hanging out with friends. People get rejuvenated, just laughing with each other. Yeah. As we used to say, cutting up, you know, and I was an undergrad, we'd go sit in the cafe and just cut up for hours and laugh. Um, But for some students, it may be taking a nap or Netflix and watching movies all day, vegging out on Netflix. Um, But some people enjoy cooking. So I think self-care is going to be relative to each person and that whatever they do for self-care, they do it consistently. Mm. Um, And they find different things that can make them feel rejuvenated and feel back, you know, feel refreshed. Um, And so they may be different depending on the types of stressors that are going on. Um, It can be something that's situational or something ongoing, depending on what's going on, different types of self-care. For Mm me, I'm a hair nails, you know, let's have a me day. Um, Like, my husband makes sure I get to sleep in on Saturdays because we have a new baby. And so, you know, I get to sleep to 9 a.m. That's a huge thing with the newborn. And so that is self-care for me. But for somebody else who doesn't have kids, it may be, hey, I want to be able to go 
to an amusement park, but they grew up not being able to afford it. So things, everything is going to be situational. And so self-care needs to be active and be utilized consistently um, and schedule it. I always say put it in Sharpie because mm-hmm. you can't erase a Sharpie. Um, and people tend to schedule time for themselves last, but you should schedule it first. Wow. Um, and so that's a lot of what I see with our students. Our students are, a lot of our students here at IEPU are overcommitted. Um, and then some have to be overcommitted because they have to take care of themselves. I've met so many students working one, two, three jobs just to pay for school and support themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's challenging. And so how do you tell a student who is having to do all of that, hey, you need to do some self-care? And they're like, I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to pay bills, graduate, so hopefully life can get better than this. And so what do you tell that student? When you have a moment, how do you feel refreshed? Are you being able to be grateful for having those jobs? Mm -hmm. Are you able to take some time off if and when needed? Um, Those are some things to be mindful of when you can't do it the way you would prefer to do it, Mm -hmm. if all things were set up and perfect. Beautifully put and eye-opening, considering that something as simple as taking care of yourself can vary not only from person to person, but even culture to culture. Another part of taking care of yourself is knowing just what to look for. In doing so, what warning signs should a student look out for to know to seek outside assistance? It is crucial to note that healthcare is not one-sided. It is multidimensional and complex. When taking care of yourself, it is important to talk about the fact that mental health care and physical health care should be treated equally. Within physical health care, there is one topic that a lot of people are not super psyched to talk about. If you could educate all students or people about sexual health specifically, what would you say? What would one piece of advice be that you would <laughs> give them? Well, or, you know, <laughs> give me everything. Okay. Yeah. Sexual health is my favorite topic since I was a peer educator in undergrad. So I've been doing this since 2001. I came into college in 2000, became a peer educator at East Carolina in 2001. So I've been doing this since 2001. So that's... the. Mm. Oh, um, there's a long time to be doing sexual health, which is my favorite topic. But one of the things I always talk about sexual health is we do what we call sex positivity. And that's going to range from abstinence to those who are having active sexual relationships. We teach, we don't preach. Okay. Me and my staff are consistently sharing that um, no matter where you are, what your preferences are, what you believe, our job here in this department is to not... Your values are your values. My job is to give you verifiable, real information. Mm -hmm. And based off your values and your beliefs, you take all this information and you make a decision that's going to be best for you. And so we teach everything and we give you information about whatever you feel like you need Mm -hmm. so that way you can make an educated decision. And that's what I believe in with sexual health. Because oftentimes people say, well, I believe this, so I won't teach you this. I offer this information. And that is not education. That is censored um, in in the essence of, well, they can't make an educated decision when they don't have all the cards on the table. Mm-hmm. And and so with me, sexual health is, is personal. Um, you can do whatever you feel comfortable doing um, as long as I'm hoping that you're using some type of um, barrier method to protect yourself and you're having open communication with your partners um, and you're enjoying the process and not using substances to enjoy the process Mm. Um, and so those are some things that we talk about in this department but most of all have fun if you want to have sex you want to have a partner or partners 
do so, but please use appropriate types of contraception so that way the outcome can be having fun and not something that is either a child when you're not ready, which can be very costly, having to make a decision around abortion or adoption, mm-hmm. or an STI you can't get rid of, or an STI you can get rid of, but it's going to cost you to get the prescription. Mm-hmm. And so that is how I feel um, and how Takesha and I teach sexual health in our department. But it's different here because Indiana doesn't require um, in high school, middle school, for information they teach you yeah. to be true and verified information. And so I can say, you know what, put a balloon on it and you're fine. And nobody will challenge me on that. And so I, I don't come from um, the mindset and teaching that that's how you do sexual health. I've always been um, taught to be comprehensive in how we teach um, sexual health education. But it's shocking to be here and to see students not have some of the basics. Mm-hmm. And when I say basics, I'm talking about basic anatomy. Ooh. Um, like, Ooh. ladies, uh-huh. know your bodies. Um, get a mirror. Check yourself out. Same thing for those who are male-identified. Look at your body. Know what your body naturally looks like. So if things start to change, you can notice it. Um, same thing with uh, those who have breasts doing self-exams, men doing testicular exams, or those who have testes and a penis. Those things impact how you look at sexual health. And it's not just about the sex part. It's also about having checkups on a regular basis. So that way you are safe, but you're not potentially impacting somebody else's health because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Mm. If this section has sparked something within you, know that IUPUI has resources that will allow you to be able to also educate others on health and wellness. You can become a peer educator or simply reach out to organizations on campus that can give you more insight into the topic, no matter who you are. Society's views can impact people in ways that will hurt them their whole lives, whether it be the black community taking back their hair or the LGBTQ plus community taking back certain terms seen as derogatory. A clear determination of love versus hate is unfolding. Psychology is making its way towards the recognition of anxiety in the lives of people of color, and this is a huge stride towards the recognition of the struggle of traditionally underrepresented groups. It is a truth that in this country today, people have different cultural experiences, and sometimes the discussion of mental health care gets swept under the table. With the recognition of racial battle fatigue as a problem in people of color, it seems like mental health recognition is progressing, which may even help cultural opinions of mental health evolve. Hmm. Knowing what you know about taking care of yourself as a growing person, identifying what your particular method looks like for you is essential to holding it together when everything is falling apart. Consideration of who you are, recognition of your triggers, and reaching out when applicable can all help you in your own personal journey and reflection of your own self-hate and self-love. Take care.